Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks to our praise team for leading us in worship uh, this morning. Everyone believes something, and your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest beliefs, your decisions, your, your choices, what you do in your life. It's moving in the direction of your strongest beliefs. And so what you believe really matters, especially what you believe about Jesus. And that's what we're talking about in this series, Do You Believe? Do you believe? We're trying to answer this question, what must I believe to follow Jesus? In other words, what's necessary for me to believe so that I can be a follower of Jesus? Now, the very first sermon ever preached about Jesus was preached by his friend, Peter, who was one of his disciples on the day of Pentecost, five weeks after Jesus was crucified for our sins. And in that sermon, Peter identifies five essential beliefs that every Jesus follower must embrace. And we've already talked about three of them. The first three are, the first three are Jesus was sent from God, and this was shown by the miracles he did. The second one is he died for our sins. That was God's intention so that our sins could be forgiven. And last week, Ethan talked to us about how Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and that shows that he has the power to resurrect us, to make us new. So today, we're gonna look at the fourth essential belief that every Jesus follower must embrace. And we're gonna find this in Acts chapter two, verse 36. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter two, verse 36. We're also gonna put this up on the screens. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is high drama. This is like a courtroom scene where the witness is on the stand and the attorney suddenly presents the evidence that can't be explained. And then the attorney looks at the witness, points his finger and says, but you, you had an opportunity to commit the crime. You had an opportunity and a motive to commit the crime. You are the one who perpetrated the foul deed. And the witness says, yes, yes, it was me. I did it, I confess, and you would have done the same if he had cheated on you. Have you seen that show? <laughs> it's that moment, because he, listen to what Peter is saying. It's God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, in your face. It was you who did this. Now, just pause for a minute and think about the change that's happened for Peter. I mean, Peter has gone from being this tough fisherman guy to being kind of the wimp when a nine-year-old girl accuses him of being a Jesus follower and saying, I don't know who he is, to now he's standing in front of thousands of people at the temple and he is saying, you killed Jesus. What would have caused that change? Could it have been that his encounter with the resurrected Jesus was the reason that he made the change. So, so what is Peter saying? Three things, first thing, he is saying, God has made this Jesus. Now, now, what he is not saying here is that because Jesus checked all the boxes, finally, finally God decided, okay, you get to be the king, no, no, no. What Peter is saying is all the way through, all the way through, this was God's intention, this was God's plan. It was God's plan for Jesus to come, for Jesus to die, for Jesus to be resurrected. 
but he's also trying to explain what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Now, now when we hear the word Lord today, it's lost a little of its flavor. It just kind of lands flat. What did it mean in, in the time of Peter? Well, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. It means sir. It can also mean leader. And Jesus certainly was that. Have you ever noticed how everyone always wants to know who's in charge? So sometimes when the staff goes off to a conference, (laughs) we'll be seated with other church staffs, and I like to play this game. You know, we'll all identify ourselves as we all work for the same church, Alice Drive, and they all say, is it located on Alice Drive? And we say, no, it's not. And then I'll ask them, I said, so look at all of us and tell me, who do you think is the lead pastor? And the answer is always the same. It's always the same. It never varies. (laughs) They think he's the lead pastor. Todd Fleming, our executive pastor. And I know why everybody thinks that. Because Todd has perfect hair. (laughs) Have you ever noticed it never moves? Everybody wants to know. (laughs) I I heard that. (laughs) I, I... Everybody wants to know who the leader is, right? But let me tell you something else about this Greek word, kurios. When they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, and they came to the name of God, Yahweh, which was so sacred that they didn't even dare write it down. When they came to that word and they had to translate it from Hebrew into Greek, they used the Greek word kurios. So when Peter's audience heard him say, this Jesus is curious, they knew. He was saying, this Jesus is God. He is the one who made the universe. He is the Almighty. He is the great I am. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is not just a miracle worker or a teacher. He is God in the flesh. That's what Peter is saying. God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now he goes on and he says, and he is also Messiah. Some of your translations will have the word Christ. He is Christ. What what does that mean? In Jesus' time, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Christ. They were looking for the person who would be a descendant of David and he would come back and he would restore Israel to the glory days when it was a significant world power, when it had influence and prestige. He would throw off the hated Romans and establish the kingdom of Israel new. And Jesus said, that's not why I'm here. That vision is too small. That's just about one nation. I'm here to bring the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I'm here to establish a kingdom where God is in charge. His values are what matter. His definitions of right and wrong, that's what matters. It is where God's effectual will is being done. That's what Jesus came to do. And it begins with his death and resurrection and it continues to this day. Peter is saying, Jesus is the king you need, not the king you wanted. How many of us are pursuing a king we want, and every time we pursue a king we want, we just wind up with a king that looks like our reflection in the mirror? And that is no king at all. So many followers of Jesus still don't get this. 
You think that the kingdom of heaven begins when you're in heaven. No, the kingdom of God begins with Jesus and it has continued. It is a force that battles against the darkness. You are invited when you accept Jesus as your savior and Lord into this kingdom where God is gracious and God is love and there is peace, but there is also a battle that we join against the darkness. We who are followers of Jesus are part of this kingdom movement of Christ. Now I want you to think about how Peter's audience heard this. God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. They had to have put their hand to their head and said, oh my God, we have killed our king. We kill the king. We killed God's king. How does God feel about that? I know in our day, in our day, we, we, we ask God to forgive our sins and that is a good thing to do. But I wonder how many of us ever get to the point of saying, and I am sorry that my sins killed Jesus. When's the last time you prayed that to your heavenly father? So why does all that matter? Well, it keeps us from the sin of self-righteousness. It keeps us from that most dangerous sin of believing that we're the only righteous ones. And, and, and if you are not like me, then you are a sinner. You're at fault. You've heard the old saying, who died and made you God? Well, here's the answer. Jesus died and he is God and when you can remember this, it keeps you from that sin of self-righteousness. This is the fourth essential belief then, that what you have to believe to follow Jesus is that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He's the one in charge, not you. The politicians are not in charge. The media is not in charge. The wealthy are not in charge. The, the Russians are not in charge. There is but one Lord and Christ, and his name is Jesus, and he is the one in charge. Now, Paul is going to expand this. In chapter 2 of Philippians, and if you have your Bible open, just flip over a few pages to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, there's this great hymn about Jesus and, and if you grew up in church, you may have heard it and you heard it talked about or preached about. And it starts out with, let this mind be uh, in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being found in form of a man, did not think it was robbery to be equal with God, but instead he humbled himself even to death on a cross. It talks about the humility and, and Jesus laying down his life. But then in verse nine, there is a shift. And this is where we want to pick up Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce calls this the great reversal, that Jesus comes in humility, but he ascends to be the king 
He is seated at the right hand of God to the highest place, and he's working to bring his kingdom to reality. And though the forces of darkness assail his kingdom, he is still battling, and that battle is going to win with his victory. Now, we're in the fog of the battle. We don't often see clearly. Sometimes you can feel like, well, the cause of what is right, the cause of Christ is, is being attacked, and we are under under oppression and, and maybe we'll be defeated, but no. What Paul reassures us is that one day every knee will bow, and this is not a bowing of worship. This is a bow of submission before the king. And who is going to bow? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, all of the angels, all of the heavenly beings, they are gonna bow one day before Jesus. And every person who has ever lived from Adam and Eve to the newest baby, we are gonna be there and we are going to bow in submission to the king. And don't miss this part under the earth. That means that every demon, every foul creature, Satan himself will bow before Jesus and he must acknowledge that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And I, I know that all of us will be there that day. You're gonna be there, I'm gonna be there, every person who ever lived. And I think about that day and what it will be like for me to bow my knee. And right now I have a choice, you have a choice about whether you'll bow your knee or not. But on that day there will be no choice. And so my decision, and I hope your decision, is I want to choose to bow before the great king now. I want to go ahead and submit myself to Jesus now. I want to go ahead and say, Jesus, you are the king. You are God in flesh. I submit to you now. I give you my life. And you say, well, what's the difference? It's all the difference in the world. It is choosing now to put myself in God's kingdom versus one day having to acknowledge he is the king. And I tell you, on that day, there will be painful truths that everyone will realize. P people will realize that everything they chased in life, approval from their families, from their bosses, status, wealth, all the little trinkets that we gather up to make ourselves feel good, we'll realize none of that was ever worthy of worship. None of that ever really gave us value None of that ever really filled our souls. And I will tell you on that day, the angels will bow and they will say, yeah, we've known this all along. But I tell you also, that same Satan who one day tempted Jesus and said, you bow before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, that Satan will bow and he will finally have to acknowledge he was defeated from the moment he rebelled against God. So what does all this mean? First of all, it means Jesus is the king, not you. Jesus is the king, not you. When people say, well, this is what I believe, it always makes me nervous. 
Because people still have this idea in their head that they get to decide what is true and what is not true. They get to decide what they will choose to believe and and what they will not choose to believe. But see, when you really understand that Jesus is God and he is king, you realize Jesus is the one who is king and it's not you. So it doesn't really matter what you believe. What matters is what Jesus says. What matter is what God values. What matter is his word revealed to us. Jesus is the king, not you. Let me tell you a second thing that this means. It means God's kingdom does not depend on your response. Oh, we get this so inverted. We think God is dependent on us. We think God is waiting around for our gifts, for for our service, that God can't accomplish anything without me. What I want you to know is that our God is gracious and he is loving, and so he invites you into his kingdom. He invites you to have your sins forgiven. But when you enter his kingdom, He wants to use you, not because he needs you, but so that you can have a purpose. He wants you to belong to his community, not so that that you can be in charge of a community, but so that, that you can understand what it is to be loved and to love others in return. What does this mean? It means that knowing Jesus is king puts everything else in perspective. You see, there were two problems in the Philippian church that Paul is addressing. The first problem was there were people who were trying to add to the gospel. They were dealing in spiritual superiority. And they were called the Judaizers. And so what they would say is before you can be a Christian, you have to become a Jew, which means everybody has to give up pork. And men, please step into the booth. We have a little surgery we need to do on you. It was a major obstacle to evangelism, as you can imagine. And what it was really about was being spiritually superior. Aren't you glad that people in church today don't fight about who is spiritually superior? Aren't you glad that today everybody is just humble before the cross? Or do you see what I see? That today there are Christians who are walking around as if they are the only ones who have the answer. And if you don't agree with them 100%, oh my gosh, then you are sinners. My friends, there is level ground at the foot of the cross. And it means every one of us is broken, every one of us has failed, and every one of us needs grace and love in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the second problem they had in Philippians. They were fighting for power. Fighting for power. There are two women. Paul addresses them and says, I entreat Judea and Syndicate to agree in the Lord. These two women had worked alongside Paul, and then Paul left, and they started arguing amongst each other, and it spilled over to the church. You've never seen that, have you? You've never seen two people start arguing in the church, and everybody gets caught up in it. Paul says, no, no, when you finally get it in your heads that this church belongs to Jesus and not to you, this doesn't become an issue anymore. The great Baptist scholar, Frank Stagg, said this, how can they, that is the Philippians, cling to their little ambitions and persist in their petty quarrels if they confess Jesus Christ as their Lord? Can we agree 
Can we agree that when Jesus followers get sidetracked by questions of spiritual superiority and when they get sidetracked about issues of power, they have stopped recognizing that Jesus is the king? Can we agree that, that we face this time as a church with great challenges, not just us, but the church at large, great challenges. And what matters is that this is Jesus' church. One of the things that gets under my skin is when people say, well, that's Clay Smith's church. No, it's not. No, it's not. This church belongs to Jesus. And that's why before we make decisions, we ask Jesus what he thinks. We pray, we talk, we seek his face. Do we get it right 100% of the time? Of course not, because we're humans. And when we get it wrong, we, we want to be willing to come and say, we got that one wrong. But let everything that we do as a church, first and foremost, honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the fourth essential belief, that Jesus is the Lord, he is God, and he is Christ, he is the King. So what, is this, what does this all mean? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, it brings us really to the big question of the day. Is Jesus in charge of you? Really? Is Jesus in charge of you? Really? I put the really in there because I know my own capacity to deceive myself. That I can fool myself into believing I am a better person than I am. But here's the truth. If Jesus is really in charge of me, I'm going to continue to be humble. And I will get humbler, more humble, I'm not going to think more highly of myself than I ought. If Jesus is really in charge of me, I'm going to be asking, what is his will? And because Jesus did not come to found an institution, but he came to establish a movement, he's always on the move, and that means I have to be thinking about, well, what is my next step? What's my next step? So I want to just touch base with some common next steps. One of these may fit you today. See, if Jesus really is in charge of you, you will want to be baptized. You'll want to be baptized. And I know it's scary sometimes. You get up in front of all these people, you get wet. That's not everybody's best look. And some of you are frightened about that. But let me assure you that if Jesus is really in charge, your allegiance to him will overcome your fears. It means that you want to worship. If Jesus is in charge of you, you will want to worship. Now, now, let's get clear that worship is individual and it is corporate. And this great hymn in Philippians reminds us that one day we are going to bow and confess that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what worship is supposed to be. We come together to get just a glimpse of heaven, of submitting to our heavenly Father and submitting to Jesus our King. If Jesus is really in charge of you, you'll want to be part of a church body. 
you will want to attach to a local church body so that you can be involved in his mission. Now, I have heard people through the years, I bet you have too, say something like, well, you don't have to go to church or be a member of a church to be a Christian. Have you heard that? And I suppose technically that is true. The problem is Jesus never said it. In fact, Jesus continually spoke through the Apostle Paul about being part of a body of Christ. If it mattered to Jesus, it ought to matter to us. And why do we think you ought to be part of a church body? Because this is a way to join in a mission of a church. Now, there are about 400 churches in the Tri-County area. And if you can't find a church that works for you, who has the problem? I'm just asking the question. If Jesus is in charge of you, you want to be in community. Why? Why do you want to be in community? So we can practice loving one another. This is why we do life groups. You've already heard a little bit about that. We're doing life group launch. You see all these options here on the walls at Loring Mill and Bishopville and in Pacala. You'll see posters in the lobby. Online, we will have some options listed for you to participate. Why do we think it's important for you to be in community, in group? Because you need to practice loving people. How do you think we're doing as a country loving one another? How do you think we're doing as a church loving one another? There's always room for improvement, right? Because frankly, some of us are hard to love. Some of you are hard to love. And I know what you were thinking, Clay, ain't nothing like how hard it is to love you. I get that. That's why we need to be in community, so that we can practice this. Practice loving those people who don't always agree with us, who are at different stages, stages of spiritual maturity. And that's why I have a dream that our group participation will double in the next five years. Because I want to see us become a more loving community in a larger community that loves less and less and less. We're going to have a new groups pastor coming at the end of September. His name's Kevin Binack. He's coming to be our groups pastor. He's going to help us accomplish this goal. He's a very talented, mature young man. I know you will love him. Not the least reason is he is a graduate of the University of Florida. Okay, if Jesus is in charge of you, you will want to grow your character. Why does that matter? Because your character is who you are. Means you're gonna want Jesus to heal your wounds in your soul. And frankly, some of us carry the wounds in our soul around like trophies. Like, hey, this justifies me being a victim. This justifies my bad behavior because I'm so wounded. Well, Jesus wants to heal those wounds. Jesus wants to strengthen your character. Jesus is going to lead you to some spiritual disciplines that are going to so deepen your character that when the storm comes, you've got an anchor that will hold. If Jesus really is in charge of you, you will want to share. You'll want to share your resources. You'll want to share your spiritual gifts and serve. You'll want to share your story because someone needs to hear how Jesus changed your life. Is Jesus in charge of you? Really. About 200 years ago, there were two brothers, John and David, born in Scotland. 
John's goal in life was to become very wealthy. And so he worked very hard and he became very wealthy. He accumulated a great deal of property, started companies, organizations. But interesting thing, if you look in, the, in an old edition, in an old edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, and let me pause here and explain to everybody under the age of 40. There used to be these things called encyclopedias. They were the Google for an older generation. And in Encyclopedia Britannica, if you looked under the name of John Livingston, what you would see was one sentence, brother of David Livingston. Who was David Livingston? David Livingston was a missionary to Africa. Early in his life, he resolved that I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. And so he left England, he went to Africa, he went to the area of Botswana. I have actually been in the church that he established in Mogadishu, Botswana. It still stands, they're still proclaiming Jesus. There's an inscription over his burial place in Westminster Abbey that reads, for 30 years, his life was spent in an unweary effort to evangelize. David gave his life to Jesus, and he did kingdom work. And on his 59th birthday, in his journal, David Livingston wrote this, my Jesus, my king, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. Does this need to be your prayer today? My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. Because I believe Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand humbly before you and before your son Jesus, our King. We acknowledge he is the one who is our Savior, who forgives our sins, but who also is in charge of this universe. So we joyfully submit to him and I pray every believer today would afresh dedicate themselves to your kingdom and to your kingdom's work. And for any who have not yet taken that step of embracing Jesus, I pray that they would. And I thank you for the hope that is ours because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So speak to us now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.